Welcome back to Inside College Admissions, a podcast presented by SCORE. I'm Elena, and I'm here again with college expert and former Dean of Admissions, Peter Van Buskirk. As part of our Family Bootcamp mini-series, we are breaking down big college planning topics into five digestible episodes for the whole family to listen to, but especially for our parents and guardians who are looking to learn more about how to support their student. Our goal with this mini-series is for supporters to feel empowered with knowledge and more ready to take on the process. So if you are just tuning into the series, take a listen to our last two episodes. In our first episode in the series, we gave you keys to getting started with college planning. And then in our second episode, we discussed why course selections matter in the college admissions process. So definitely go on back and listen to those. Today's episode is strategies for managing the SAT and ACT experience with your student. We'll go over the question on everyone's mind. Are colleges really test optional? And we'll also dive into test preparation, the difference between the SAT and ACT, and what super scoring and self-reporting means for students. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Peter. Hey, Elena. Now, for anyone who's just tuning in, Peter has worked in college admissions for more than 27 years at two different institutions, and he's been a dean of admissions, worked in the provost office, and even been an athletic director. He now brings his college admissions experience to students through his organization, Best College Fit, and through our topic today. So testing is a really changing landscape these days. I think that COVID changed a lot of expectations. Mm -hmm. Today, what would you say is the role of testing in college admission? We, we could spend hours talking about this, but we're going to distill it down to uh, the, the role of testing now, according to the people who make the tests, the psychometricians who make the test, the role of testing is to help admission officers predict with a high degree of accuracy the student's likely performance in the first year of college at, mm -hmm. at a particular institution. Okay. Uh, so it's not an intelligence test. It's not predicting who will graduate. It's simply giving me a better understanding as an admission officer. What is the likelihood that this student can do the work at our school in the first year? And you know what? It's worthless. It's absolutely. Wow. And I say this with, with some adamacy and conviction because for decades, literally decades, colleges and universities have been doing validity studies every year, looking at all the factors that predict success in the first year of college. And when they look at all the factors that predict success, they find that the SAT makes just a tiny little bit of a difference. Wow. Maybe one or 2% difference in, in the predictive ability. So institutions have known for a long time that they can make good decisions about whom to admit without the test result. So if that's the case, why do they insist that they send the students send the test in and results in? The only answer I can come to is that it's all about marketing. They like to be able to brag to the world about how smart the kids are that they're bringing in, even though that's not what the tests are revealing. Wow. Wow. I feel like right off the bat, you're pulling back the curtain on this. <laughs> That's surprising. And I, I think that it's a great point that it's not about intelligence. It's about that predictability. So if the tests are worthless, why do colleges require students to submit them? Well, there are a lot of reasons. And I think that historically, some of the more selective schools have, have just found it convenient to include a test element in their algorithms. But I think that a lot of schools rely on the results as, to be part of the marketing. 
and then uh, there are going to be some scholarship programs that a school, for example, a school that may not or may concede that, the, I, hey, we don't need the test for admission. They're still going to say, OK, you want a scholarship at our school? You're going to have to send in your test results, because if we're going to give a scholarship, we want to make sure we get something back. We want a big number. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, many state universities are objectively driven in the process. Uh, their, their selection process can be boiled down to a matter of, of numbers, you know, a test result, a GPA, a ranking class, et cetera. So as long as there are students applying to colleges or universities that are objectively oriented in the process, not holistically oriented, then the, the test is going to be required somewhere along the line. Mm-hmm. That's That's really good to know. And I guess it provides some some more clarity on why they would require them. But there are also so many schools who don't require them. So I'm sure a lot of parents or guardians out there have heard the terms test optional or test blind. What do these terms really mean? You're right. There are a lot of schools that make the submission of test optional. And I'll I'll get into the definition in a second. But before COVID, and I like the fact that you made this observation about COVID, before COVID, there were already more than a thousand colleges and universities that were test optional. Mm -hmm. Publicly acknowledging we can do this without test results. When COVID hit, admission officers around the country, especially at the most selective schools in the country, were saying, how can we expect students to send in test results when the kids can't get to the test centers? literally they were saying, this gives us a good opportunity to experiment without tests. We've known we don't need them, but let's see how it works. Yeah. So that number went from over a thousand test optional schools to over 1800 in a matter of three years. Wow. Exploded, exploded growth. And of course, the question is how long is that going to last? And, and that's, that's another question we might want to wrestle with, but what does that mean? What, that group of 1800 will include colleges that are test optional, test flexible, test blind, Okay. Test optional means that the institution will receive tests from students who want to submit them. So you've got a a respectable score and you want to send it in, you're all set. You can send it in. It becomes a part of of your your credential. You don't want to send it in because you're, you're not real pleased with it, or you simply don't agree with the philosophy of testing, which happens a lot. There are a lot of high test takers who don't send them in because they they figure it's none of your business kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, My academic record instead. So that's test optional. Test blind references an admission situation where the admission office promises not to look at any tests at all. You send them in by accident. We're not going to look at them at all. We don't want to see tests. Okay. And then test flexible is referencing a situation where the institution says, well, okay, we don't want to see, we don't need to see your SAT, but if you're not going to send your SAT, we need to see five AP exams, or we need to see graded writing samples. There there are things that they want in place of the test. So this is going on with those different titles. Interesting. I didn't know that about test flexible. I hadn't heard of that that before, but I'm not sure I would take that option. There are all kinds of permutations in here. And I would add to, I think that for any family that's trying to get a handle on the test optional environment in any way, the the website that can be very helpful is called fairtest.org, F-A-I-R-T-E-S-T.org. All of the schools that are test optional, test blind, test flexible are listed in alphabetical order at that website. Wow. Tremendous resource for families that are trying to get a handle on, on what's available. That's so, so helpful. And really, when it comes to these, my question that might be on others' minds as well, how can you really trust that colleges are test optional and that it's not going to hurt a student to not submit scores? 
Well, it's a fair question. You don't know. Mm. What I can assure you is behind closed doors, institutions that are test optional are gleeful at the opportunity to look at young people, not numbers. Mm -hmm. But when my institution went test optional 30 years ago, that initial experience was an incredible revelation. Prior to test optional, we would look at kids that we liked an awful lot. And then somebody would say, but look at her scores. We What, what will her scores do to our profile if we take her? Well, we won't take her. Well, now mm. without the scores being there, we look at the young person, same young person and say, well, let's go ahead and take her. And we were admitting some pretty cool people who we weren't able to get to because we were requiring the test previously. But I think, you know, in the holistic admission process, which is one that looks at all factors, if your child's considering a place that is holistic in the admission process, there's a really, really good reason for you to believe in the truth that they are, are test optional. They're, they're really trying to find ways to see the whole person rather than just a particular aspect of the credential. For that year that we went test optional and we can continue for a long time. At the end of the year, we were curious to see what the scores would have been for the students Ooh. who send them in. So we did the research. We found something fascinating. The average score for the non-submitting student was almost identical to the average score for the submitting student. So if a college is going to discriminate, they're, they're fools. They're fools. Because yeah. They're really, really talented students they're going to miss. That's that's so interesting. And I also like that the students who you said you admitted, they ended up being really interesting, cool students to have on campus. And and the test wasn't a part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really liberating to, to be able to think that way in the admission process. Absolutely. So if a student doesn't submit any scores, will colleges assume that they're low? Can this hurt them? Do they know about this average that you talked about? Well, they do. They've done enough of the research to understand that they shouldn't make those kinds of assumptions. Now, I do want to point out here that sometimes when students see test optional, they think, oh, I got a better chance of getting in. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's simply the submission is made optional. This simply means you don't have to deal with that potential barrier, but there may be still other barriers in a very selective admission process that have to be overcome and you might overcome them or not. My general advice to the student is if your super score on a test, which is the best combination of subtest results, if your super score is at or above the average that is posted for the institution, then okay, why not? It, it can be a positive credential, but if it's below the average, why would you send it in? It, right. will it will simply create a visible negative bias. Right. It has to be overcome. So that's that's the way I approach it. That's a good point. Looking at that average score and basing yours on that, that could maybe help you make the decision if you want to submit it or not. But yeah, if it's below, maybe don't. Absolutely. So I know you mentioned that a lot of colleges have gone test optional now, over 1,800 won't a lot of those colleges that went test optional for COVID shift back to requiring test submissions? Some will. And, and it's interesting, earlier this winter, there, there are two prime examples of, of how this could go. Within days of making these announcements, on the one hand, MIT says, we're going to revert back to requiring tests. Mm. Harvard, another fairly well-known place up in Cambridge, said, no, we're committing to another four years, at least. Wow. My conversations with admission officers that have gone test optional through COVID is that they're, again, they're privately gleeful about this. This is, this is good stuff. Now, 
you need to understand that it works for them in a different number of different levels. It means that in the evaluation of a particular candidate, they don't have to focus on the numbers. They can focus on the person. But what do you think? The, the fact that a school is test optional, does it increase the number of applicants who want to apply or decrease? I mean, some of these schools that began the COVID period admitting 5% of their applicants saw increases in applicant numbers by 20 to 25%. So they went from admitting 5% to 3%. So you know, it's, right. they're, they're trying to you know, establish themselves uh, among their peers as the most selective schools out there. This is another enrollment strategy. Wow, Peter, I, I wouldn't have even thought of that. But yes, that's that's so true. It's definitely a strategic choice on the college's part, whether they're going to revert back or not. They know they don't need it. It's just a matter of convenience. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Another thing that parents or guardians might be wondering is, should their student take the SAT or the ACT? Good question. I recommend, especially early in the process, this would be before the end of the junior year. It's still fairly early, but even before that, the students need to, I think, try one of each, an SAT mm-hmm. and an ACT, because they're different tests. Yeah. The subject-based test, one is a logic and reasoning test. And then which test suits you best when you choose that a style of test, then pursue that test, but take it no more than three times. Mm. Research shows research shows that with or without test preparation, you should be able to improve your results from the first to the second test and from the second to the third test. Research also shows rather conclusively that after the third test, nothing happens. There's a point of diminishing return. So, you know, try mm. each and and make sure that when you, you make that declaration, you, you move, uh, you know, in, in terms of trying to improve your result, but no more than three times. Okay, that's a really great sort of measure there. And in terms of that, so for the SAT, trying it out would be the PSAT that freshmen have to take? Well, interesting that you identify it with freshmen. No, let's let's take a look at, at when the tests are designed to be administered. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the PSAT is designed to be administered in the fall of the junior year. It okay. also has relevance in terms of qualifying students for the National Merit Scholarship Program. Mm-hmm. But that is the preliminary SAT early October of the junior year. And then from that follows the, the sequence of SAT availability. The ACT has a similar schedule mm-hmm. sort of a preliminary ACT. Now, you mentioned freshman year. Mm-hmm. I get a little skittish about this because if, if the test is designed to measure students' aptitude and performance as fall of the junior year, what's the point in asking a student in the freshman year to take it? Right. A lot of students in the freshman year aren't prepared, don't have the exposure curricularly and, and to, to critical thinking to be able to do well. Now, there are some talent programs that will require students to take a you know test back in seventh or eighth grade. And it's really kind of silly because they're prodigies and okay, they're probably going to do well. But Other than that, moms and dads, I would strongly discourage kids from getting involved with any kind of testing or test prep before the junior year. It's Mm. an unnecessary distraction for them at a time when they need to be focusing on other things that are more important in their lives. Yeah. Wow. I'm really glad this came up because using junior year as that threshold for starting prep is good advice for for parents or guardians to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and we're talking about prep too. Some families will invest a fair amount in, in different kinds of, of the test prep. And 
there is evidence that test prep of some types can help students improve scores. Be careful if you engage in test prep. Don't buy into test prep because a company promises an improvement of 200 points. They can't promise anything. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and I'm always leery of companies that, that build themselves as experts because we scored 1600 on the SAT. Now, that, that just means they scored 1600. It doesn't mean they're experts about the test. But at any rate, I think that if you engage in test prep, engage in test prep that makes sense for your child according to learning style. Some kids can learn very well in a group setting. Some can do it well online. Some need a tutorial experience. And there are all kinds of possibilities out there. And there are free things available. I mean, the Khan Academy with the, the College Board provides free test prep. There are test prep books uh, with, with practice tests in them. All kinds of things you can do that don't require a ton of money. Oh, and the best, Absolutely. best test prep, uh -huh. I'm sure you'll appreciate this, reading. Students oh. who have a lot of exposure to words and ideas within the context of an article, a story, whatever, they are able to, to do better uh, than on, on a, in a testing environment. That's a really great point, because I remember that a lot of these tests involve reading comprehension and being able to derive what a passage is about in a quick amount of time. So reading is one of those really accessible ways to prepare for tests and not even know it. Exactly. And have fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, you mentioned super scores. Mm -hmm. What is a super score? A super score is the best combination of subtest results coming from multiple test administrations. You've taken the SAT three times. It's, it's the best critical reading and, and writing score and the best math score from any of those different tests. And same as okay. ACT is taking the best subtest results to create a new uh, super score. Okay. So I could take the test um, in September, February, and March, and they'll take those. How, you know, how is the super score determined? Well, the institution will want to see the complete result from a particular administration. But if your best critical reading and, and writing is going to be from the, I'm, I'm misstating, the evidence-based reading and writing is what it's called. If that came in, let's say, May of your junior year and your best math score came in October of the senior year, you'll have to submit the full report for each of those tests. And the, the institution will take the best critical evidence-based reading and writing and combine it with your best math into a new super score. That's how it will happen. You can't, you can't arbitrarily just say, well, this was my best evidence-based uh, reading and writing, and this was my best math, take my word for it. Okay. So the student can't just submit the best subtest results. This is something that they submit the full report and the college super scores itself? Most schools will super score. Some don't, but most will. Okay. And is that something that they would advertise so you would know that they're going to super score it? You hope so. Uh, sometimes there's not as much transparency into that as possible as there could be, but I, I would recommend checking the websites uh, of the schools to, to look at the admission requirements. They, they generally will be pretty transparent about their requirement. Okay, that's good to know. And something that I've heard about that I also am not sure what it means, what does score choice mean? Score choice is one of my favorite topics these days. It means that when a student takes a test, an SAT, ACT, AP, IB, the student is the owner of the result. Not mm. mom and dad, 
not the high school, not the college or university, not the college board, the student owns a result. And what does that mean? It means that the student has the power to decide what the colleges see and when. So if you're conscious of trying to put together a good super score, you're wondering whether you want to do test optional or not with the school, you need to be careful about how you're revealing your information. Mm -hmm. So here's a good example. When students register to take a test, the registration form asks for a lot of information. There will be an information block that says, if you tell us the names of your four colleges, we'll be happy to send them your results free of charge. And oh. watch the students are nervous and excited. They'll write my first choice, my second choice. Would you really do that? Would you reveal your results to an institution you care about before you've seen them? Now, maybe you ace the test and all's good, but maybe you get the results back later and you find that you didn't do as well as you wanted to, too late. They have the results. So wow, you have the power to decide what they see and when, but you also need to exercise the responsibility for managing that information so that it it goes where it needs to go at the right time. It can be awkward at times because there will be an admission interviews or maybe an athletic recruiter says, well, tell us what your scores are. You say, I'm still working on it. Be politely coy, okay? Yeah. Say, I'm not, not quite sure yet. Wow. I didn't know about that. And supporters who are listening, this is a great thing to advise your students not to just blindly trust Oh, okay, sure. I'll I'll put down my top four colleges. Like you said, you haven't seen the score. So students, you're in control of that score and who sees it at what point in your application process. Bingo. Yeah. So we spoke about super scoring and students submitting those scores on their own. Is it true that some colleges allow students to self-report test scores on their applications? Yes, it is true. And it'll be at some of the state universities and some other institutions on the application for admission will say, tell us what your your test results are. And you're thinking, is this really going to work? I mean, do I get to do this? Are they, are they going to look at my GPA and my SAT just based on what I report? And a lot of them do. And, and the results tend to indicate that there's a lot of integrity involved here. I mean, the students the self-reported information turns out to be accurate. Now, the kicker here is that once you're accepted and enrolled, the college will expect a full transcript of all that data from your school. Yeah. And we can talk about how important it is that you show the same information then that you had when you were admitted. And if, if it turns out the information that you're showing at the end officially doesn't match what we thought you were doing, <laughs> self-reported, we're going to have another conversation and you may not have that place in the class anymore. Right. Yikes. That's definitely a lot of responsibility and kind of with the score choice, how students have that power. Mm-hmm. You also have the power when it comes to those test scores and how you're self-reporting them, but with great power comes great responsibility. You got it. <laughs> So when I was taking the SAT and the ACT, which really wasn't that long ago, it was all paper and pencil. Sure, it went through a Scantron, but this was not something that was done online. So I understand now that the SAT will be offered digitally. How can parents or guardians expect that to impact their student? That's a really good question. And I I have to confess, I don't know all of the answers to that because I've never been through the digital process. I know that some programs, I know the College Board and the ACT are, are putting some information out that, that orient students to this. The digital thing is is already out there mm. for students who are applying internationally, coming into the country internationally. But oh. for students who are 
in this country, applying to colleges and universities in this country, you won't have exposure to this until the fall. So in the fall of 2023, the PSAT will be the first that's administered digitally. Wow. And the following March is the first SAT that will be provided digitally. So imagine this, you take the digital PSAT in October, and then you want to take the November SAT, that'll be paper and pencil or January, paper and pencil, uh, March digital. Now the content wow. is the same, but the, the pace through by which students can move through the, the, the test is going to be different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did not grow up in a digital age, so it would be very foreign to me, but for a lot of young people, this is second nature. So it, it shouldn't be an issue. It's, it's not something that's designed to trick or disadvantage anybody. It's uh, trying to create some more efficiencies. Now, the one efficiency that it will create is that the results for a particular test will be known almost instantaneously. Now, wow. as you've taken the test, you got to wait four to six weeks to get your results. Uh, yeah. Now you, you take the test and it'll be scored immediately and you look down. Oh, that's what I got. Wow. Wow. <laughs> High school me was waiting on pins and needles to get that <laughs> result in the mail. <laughs> oh. No. Wow. Uh, it's a, a brave new world coming with testing. A brave new world. <laughs> so, Peter, my last question is, for parents and guardians, SAT, ACT prep is a really big, kind of daunting sometimes thing to think about. How can their students best prepare for these tests? Well, we talked a little bit about the test prep and we talked about reading, but I, I guess I would like to add a thought here. And that is that test prep, when you do it programmatically, is effective one time. Now, many test mm. prep programs run about 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. And so that you you meet once a week for 12 weeks. My strong suggestion is that the student engage, if you're going to do test prep, engage in such a program such that the last week will come within two weeks of the time you sit for an actual test. Mm -hmm. So if, if there, there are parents who want to send their kids to SAT camps or ACT camps in the summertime, I'm not sure that that makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, there are going to be a lot of tips and stuff that the students can get from that. But then if they don't take the test again, the real test for three months or so, they're going to forget half of what they learned. Right. That doesn't mean that the second time the student takes the SAT, you take the test prep all over again, because it's like repeating a class. I think do the do the course once and then engage in reading, practice tests and that kind of thing to, to stay on top of it. There's just so much that students can do with their discretionary time to help themselves as applicants beyond test prep. Right. Do it once, you do it well, then then engage in the things that give you joy in life and, and, and let them come to define who you are. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much outside of, you know, some of those high cost test preps that you can do, such as reading or just taking your schoolwork seriously that can really help you prepare. Yeah. And I know that I took part in some free or low cost programs at my town high school. And I also used Khan Academy, which you mentioned, which is free. It's K-H-A-N Academy online. And they have tons of free resources that are really, really great for preparing. So I think those are really great tips, Peter. Good. You just want to be careful as a parent not to burden your child with a heavy layer of testing and test prep because all of a sudden they're not going to be teenagers anymore. And if they've, if they spent all their discretionary time trying to get the best score they can get, uh, they've missed a lot of other things. 
Absolutely. So thank you so much, Peter, for these really great tips. I think this gives a lot of helpful strategies for parents or guardians in managing this SAT ACT experience. Well, it's, it's important. Uh, just don't let it become too important. Absolutely. Remember to have fun with it. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for your amazing advice. And listeners, keep an eye out for the next episode in our Family Bootcamp miniseries. We'll be talking about tips for building a productive college list and what kinds of colleges and how many your students should be adding to their lists. Bye.